0: We are studying this afternoon Job chapters 15, 16, and 17, and I will read chapter 17, verses 2 to the end, 17 verses 2 to the end. Are not mockers with me, and does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden their heart from understanding, therefore you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. For he has made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadows. Upright men are astonished at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. But please come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. My days are past. My purposes are broken off, even the thoughts of my heart. They change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? So we're beginning here in chapters 15 and following, the second round of speeches between Job and his three friends. And we find here in these three chapters, or in this whole section of Job rather, the same order that we found in the first round of speeches, Eliphaz, Bildad, Shofar, and to each a reply by Job. But I think what you see here in the uh, speeches of the friends is um, stronger condemnation of Job and more vehement answers on the part of Job. The, The main ideas don't change very much, but the language is stronger on both sides. The dispute between them is obviously becoming Uh, greater. We're going to begin with a quick look, a relatively quick look, at Eliphaz's speech in chapter 15. And um, we should note about this speech, I think, that it contrasts significantly with his first speech, In connection with that first speech, I said that there was no specific accusation of sin against Job, and I still think that's probably true, but even if there is an accusation of sin or an implied accusation of sin, it's limited to just a few verses, and it's not very vehement what we find is the main idea in that first speech of Eliphaz, and that's in chapters 4 and 5, is an urging Job to submit to the chastening of God. I think we could say that's kind of the theme of that first speech of Eliphaz. And we noted that in that speech, uh, Eliphaz definitely does show a lack of compassion for Job's very difficult circumstances. But now when we come to this speech, we find Eliphaz has changed his mind. If he was unwilling in chapters 4 and 5 to accuse Job of sin, here he is most definitely not unwilling to accuse Job of sin. He begins his speech, in fact, with very specific accusations of sin. Now, I do think that as we look at those accusations of sin that Eliphaz makes, he may be referring primarily or even only not to sins committed prior to Job's affliction, but rather to sins which Job has committed since. Job has committed in his words then, in the speeches he has made to his friends, and in the things he has said God, But as we look at that, uh, at the accusations he makes against Job, think about that question. The speech of Eliphaz divides into two main parts. First of all, in verses 1 to 16, we have the accusations of uh, Eliphaz against Job. And then in verses 17 to 35, we have a very vivid description of the uh, terrors and judgments of those who are wicked. So those are the two main parts. But let's begin then by looking at the accusations that he makes against Job. There's a kind of summary or concluding section in verses 14 to 16, so the accusations are found really in verses 2 to 13. And in, cha- in verse 2 and 3, he accuses Job of empty and unprofitable talk. Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? He's saying to Job, Your speeches are empty, they're vain, they can do no good to you or to anyone else. So that's his first accusation. The second accusation is found in verses 4 and 5, and here, basically, he accuses Job of impiety. You cast off fear, he says, and restrain prayer before God. And your iniquity, and here's why I think he's he's talking not about Job's behavior prior to his afflictions, but afterwards, your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. That is, you are being instructed by a wicked heart in the words which you are uh, speaking. And now your own mouth condemns you and not I. Yes, your own lips will testify against you. And it it almost seems to me anyway, in verses 5 and 6, that what Eliphaz is implying is that if Job has been able to speak so wickedly since his affliction, that his affliction probably also was due to some kind of sin. I think that's kind of implied in what Eliphaz is saying here. So you have the second accusation that he does not fear God and that he speaks wickedly against him. That's verses 4 to 6. Then in verses 7 to 10 he basically accuses Job of arrogance. Job, uh, he says, is acting like the only man who has any kind of wisdom at all. Are you the first man who was born? You're you're talking as if you're the only one who has ever had any wisdom, and that you, as if you were the first man, and you're older than the hills, and you know, uh, therefore, much more than anyone else could possibly know. Have you heard the counsel of God? That is, have you been admitted into the secret counsel of God to Uh, know exactly what God is thinking and how God works and what uh, 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 God's purposes are and everything? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? He says, what do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that is not in us? And in verse 10, then, the gray-haired and the aged are among us, and they are much older than your father. So, Eliphaz sets against Job's arrogance then the fact that not only are he and his friends telling Job this, but if Job would only listen to older men, men from ancient times, they would tell him the same things. So that's his third accusation. Then in verse 11, his fourth accusation, and that is that Job refuses to receive the consolations of God. Are the consolations of God too small for you and the word spoken gently with you? And I I think that probably Eliphaz is here referring to his first speech to Job. Perhaps you remember in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Eliphaz had tried to comfort Job. Chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises, but he binds up. He, he wounds, but his hands make whole. And I think Eliphaz is probably referring back to that, and he's saying to Job, "You, I tried to comfort you, and you refer, refused the consolations of God, as if they were Insignificant, not helpful. Uh, Eliphaz's own pride may well have been stung by Job's refusal to receive those consolations. So that's his fourth accusation. You refuse to receive the comfort of God. And the fifth accusation then in verses 12 and 13, you are speaking rebelliously and in unrighteous anger against God. You have let your heart carry you away, and you have closed your eyes to what is in your heart, verse 12. You have turned your spirit against God, and thus all these very evil words have come out of your mouth. So it's very clear, Eliphaz has decided definitely Job has sinned. He makes very specific accusations empty and unprofitable talk, impiety, failing to learn from the ancients and therefore arrogant, arrogance, being unwilling to receive the consolations of God, and speaking unrighteously and angrily and rebelliously against God. Now, as I said, verses 14 and 16 are kind of um, the concluding uh, remarks that, Eliphaz makes in connection with these specific accusations and what he's saying here to Job is why do you think you can be pure I've made all these accusations your other friends have been telling you that you've been sinning. the ancients would say the same thing to you and not only that but listen to this what is man that he could be pure and he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous so he's He's saying to Job, what makes you think that you can be righteous before God? And what makes you think, this also is part of this, I think, what makes you think that you could justify yourself then in the presence of God? This uh, language here in verses 14 to 16 also recalls words that Eliphaz had spoken to Job in chapter 4 verses 17 to 19, and then in chapter 5, verse 1, if you remember there, he said, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth? And I think As I said there, that what Eliphaz is saying is not just no one can be righteous before God, but no one can help to plead his own case with God and justify himself in God's eyes. That's what you want to do, but God doesn't listen to men, and he he doesn't even listen to angels. How much less, then, would he listen to man? And so he concludes in chapter 5, verse 1, call out now, is there anyone who will answer? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? And so he's basically saying the same thing to Job here in verses 14 to 16. What makes you think that you can approve your righteousness to God? But I think it's even more pointed here because he's now accusing Job of sin in the first part of this chapter, very clearly accusing Job of sin, he's really saying, you can't look, it's not only true that you can't look to other men or to angels for your help, but don't depend on yourself either. You're as much a sinner, you're as as abominable and, and filthy as any other man, so why do you think you should be able to justify yourself in God's presence? And all of that, of course, is legitimate. But again, of course, he fails to understand Job's desperation and the extent of Job's pain and grief. And even, I think, he fails to understand that though Job has used very strong language and has said things, that later he will take back. Nevertheless, Job has not abandoned faith. He acts as if Job has abandoned faith. But Job has not. And that's a very important point. Job never, throughout the whole course of his uh, despair and affliction, abandoned faith altogether. He did not reject God. He did not curse God. He did not ever say, I don't believe that God is in his heaven or that God is no longer a redeemer and savior. He went to God, in fact, with his troubles because he believed that God was redeemer and savior. He just didn't see how God could be his redeemer and savior in the present circumstances. So that's the first part of Eliphaz's speech. In the second part of the speech, then he paints a vivid portrait of the wicked man and the wicked man's fears. He introduces this in verses 17 to 19 by reminding Job again of wise men of old. He says, I'll tell you what I've seen, and I'll tell you also what wise men have said in the past who have not hidden anything received from their fathers. The difficult verse in this connection is verse 19. To whom alone, that is the fathers, the land was given and no alien passed among them. Probably the meaning there is that this was in a time that was more righteous than the times in which Job and his friends lived. And so there was not the uh, corruption and false teaching Prevalent in those times that there is in Job's time. And therefore there was not as much confusion in the minds of men about what is true wisdom and what is not. They had the land to themselves, no alien, that is no uh, false teacher basically would be the idea, passed among them. Their wisdom was more pure than our wisdom and you should therefore listen to them. In verses 20 to 24, he speaks especially of the fear of death, then, under which the wicked uh, live. Notice the uh, emphasis here on fear and knowledge. Verse 21 Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In uh, verse 22, he does not believe that he will return from darkness. Verse 23, he knows that a day of darkness is ready at hand. And then in 24, trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. So he's talking about the fear of death under which the wicked live. And they live under this fear of death because they act defiantly against God. Verses 25 and 26, he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. In verses 27 to 30, then, he dwells on the very uh, temporary nature of any prosperity that the wicked may have. They cover their face with fatness, and they make their waists heavy with fat. Nevertheless, they dwell in desolate cities, in houses which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth, he will go away. So the fragility of the life of the wicked and the prosperity of the wicked. And therefore a warning in the last part of the chapter. Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. And this warning, of course, is meant for Job as well. He's accused Job of sin. He said, Job, you're wicked. You better take this warning then to heart. So that's the the basic thrust of Eliphaz's speech. It's a much stronger speech, much less sympathetic speech, much more accusatory speech than his first speech to Job. And Job's answer is still basically along the same lines as before, though more vehement. He's unable to receive Eliphaz's words unable to receive Eliphaz's warning. He considers that warning, especially in the last part of the chapter, as inapplicable to himself, and he considers the accusations of sin that Eliphaz makes as false. And that's what we find then in chapters 16 and 17. Now this This speech of Job, the second speech of Job, in response to Eliphaz, I think falls into five main parts. And these five parts are kind of arranged in a chiastic way. So in chapter 16, verses 2 to 6, or 2 to 5, 6 kind of falls in between as a transition verse. In those verses, Job complains against his friends. And if you go then to the end of chapter 17, you'll see that he again addresses his friends and that he complains really again against them. But please, he says, come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. Then in chapter 16, verses 7 to 14, Job complains against God. Those verses are addressed against God. Complain about what God has done to him. And in chapter 17, the corresponding part, uh, Job speaks, verses 2 to 9, that is, again against God, complaining against God. And the final Piece, the middle piece of this, then 16 verse 15 to 17 verse 1, Job talks about the devastation that God's enmity has brought into his life. So those five parts. So let's go then to... Chapter 16, verses 1 to 6, and his complaint against his friends, he first of all calls them miserable comforters. And he means not only that they have failed to give him any comfort, but that they have actually increased his distress by their attempts to comfort him. They are comforters of trouble. In verse 4 and 5, Job says, Just imagine for a moment that we have changed places, that you, my friends, are in my place and that I am in your place. I could do in those circumstances the same thing to you that you are doing to me. I could bring all these accusations of sin, all these warnings about the judgments of God on the wicked, but I wouldn't do that, Job says, verse 5. I would strengthen you. I would strengthen you with my mouth and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. And implicit, of course, is the question, why aren't you doing that for me? And so he says, he concludes in verse 6, though I speak, though I try to explain myself to you, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent... Saying nothing in response to you, how am I eased? That doesn't help me either. In verses 7 to 14, he begins to speak against God and to complain about what God has done to him. Notice, in these verses, that Job switches back and forth between second and third person. Sometimes he talks about God in the third person, and sometimes he talks directly to God in the second person. You see this already in verse 7. Now he has worn me out, that's God, God has worn me out. You, that's God again, have made desolate all my company. And then, In verse 8, the second person continues, but in verse 9, he switches back to the third person. He tears me in his wrath. So, he's sometimes talking directly to God and sometimes talking about God. This is very common, of course, in Hebrew poetry. Nothing that should surprise us there. But also notice in verses 10 and 11 that Job complains about his enemies. They, he says, gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. Now, Job may be talking about his three friends there. That's possible. He may also be talking about those whom he talks, he speaks of in chapter 30, verses 1 and following. These are others who were aware of his trouble. Job 30 Verse 1 He says this. But now they mock at me, men younger than I, whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. And he talks about these men at length in the Chapter that follows verse nine, he says, "Now am I their taunting song? Yes, I am there by word." So he's talking about his enemies here, but really this too, is a complaint against God because he goes on in verse eleven to say, "God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked." So all these enemies are gathered around me, gaping at me, striking me." gathering against me but it is God who has put them there God who has delivered me into their hands so he's complaining even against God in those verses in verses 7 to 9 then his language becomes increasingly strong he first describes his circumstances I think now he has worn me out this was something Eliphaz had said of him in chapter 4 verse 2, if one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? And then later again he had said, he said to him, now it comes upon you, verse 5, and you are weary. And Job says here in chapter 16, yes, I am weary. And I'm weary because God has worn me out. He has given me more than I can bear. You have made desolate all my company, that is, you've destroyed my household, taken away my family, my servants, all my companions. I'm left completely desolate. You've taken away my vitality, verse 8, shriveled me up, so that this witnesses against me, that you are my enemy. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. But notice especially the strength of the language in verse 9. He tears me in his wrath and hates me. God hates me, Job says. He gnashes at me with his teeth like a wild animal over his prey. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. But his language becomes even stronger, I think, in verses 12 and following. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks or wounds me with wound upon wound. He uses that word wound three times there in verse 14. He wounds me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. I think it's uh, Francis Anderson who in verse 12, uh, verse 13 says that you could uh, translate that second line as he, he chops my kidneys and has no pity. The word is not heart, but kidneys there. Perhaps you have a a marginal note there that indicates that. So God is hacking away at him like a warrior, not killing him, but hacking away at him with his sword and piercing him with his arrows, wounding him with wound after wound because of his hatred For him. And Job says, This has brought devastation into my life. Again, in verses 15 and 16, he uh, describes, in literal terms, I think, his circumstances. He said, In response to what God has done, I've sewn sackcloth over my skin, laid my head in the dust, my face is flushed from weeping and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. No doubt this was all literally true. Although no violence is in my hands and my prayer is pure, you see, Job says, I'm righteous. He confesses no sin. He admits to no sin that would justify his afflictions, as his friends say. And so in verses 18 to 21, He cries to the earth not to cover his blood. Those are difficult verses. Not so much verse 18 itself, but what does Job mean in the verses that follow? Verse 18, he's simply saying, Let my blood cry out to God as Abel's blood cried out to God when uh, Cain murdered him. Let my blood cry out to God for justice. Let my cry have no resting place until justice has been given to me. But the difficulty comes in verses 19 and following. There are some who take this in a very positive way and say that Job is, is saying here basically, I have an advocate in heaven, and I'll trust that advocate to bring my case before God. They're saying, they say, these commentators, that basically this is trust in his Redeemer. And Job does know of his Redeemer, he does know that he has a mediator and an advocate with God. The problem is, if that's such a positive statement there in verse 19, why do we have such a desperate and despairing words following My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God. And then for when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. So I think that what we have to do is see that a little bit differently when he says, even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high, I think what he means is that the cry of his blood has come up into heaven. He's confident then that that cry of blood, his blood for justice it has come within the hearing of God. He says in verse 20 then, my friends scorned me, And surely that was the case. And therefore, my eyes pour out tears to God. So he's saying, I find no help in my friends. I've cried to them, and they simply accuse me again and again of sin. They scorn me. And so I turn to God, and I hope that my cry will come up to God and that he will hear my cry. And so in verse 21 What he's saying, and again, some say this is him anticipating an advocate in Christ, but I think it might be better to take it in this way, Oh, that it, that is my cry, the blood which has been shed, my blood which has been shed, my plea for a man with God, as a man pleads for his neighbor. And that word one there can legitimately, grammatically be translated as it, referring to the witness of verse 19 or the cry of verse 18. Oh, that it might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. That is, what Job is saying here is, I know that my cry has reached to heaven, but I'm not sure that God has heard. I'm not sure that he has really listened and that he will give the justice that I ask for. And that's why then he concludes this part of his speech with such despair. When a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. My spirit is broken my days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. So the next section of his speech then is verses 2 to 9. And again, this is very difficult. And you'll find different interpretations in the commentators if you look them up. I'm not going to review all those different interpretations. I'll tell you what I think is the best interpretation of these verses. And if you want to explore that further, you can study some of the other commentators on it and and look to see what they have to say. I present my interpretation somewhat tentatively, therefore. I think in verses 2 to 9, what he is saying, basically, is, I find no help in my friends. Therefore, I seek my help from God, but God is against me. I think that's the basic message. So he, it, when, uh, he, when he says in chapter 2, Are not mockers with me, and does not my eye dwell on their provocation? He's saying, this is how my friends are dealing with me. I can't Obviously, I can't find any help with them. They simply scoff at my distress by their unsympathetic words. And so he turns to God, and these words are addressed to God, put down a pledge for me with yourself. He says, you be my guarantee of safety. You be my surety. You be my surety that I am righteous. You be my surety against this affliction that I will come through this, and you will be and are my friend. Because I have no one else, who is he who will shake hands with me? Shake hands means being surety. Who is Who among my friends or among those around me will do this? You do it for me. And one of the grounds he gives for God to do this is that the failure of his friends for him is because of what God has done to their his friends. You have hidden their heart from understanding. And therefore you will not exalt them. That is, you will not give them the position of becoming surety for me. They cannot be my surety because you have hidden their heart from understanding. So I need you. You're the only one I have left. Verse 5, I think, is especially difficult. He who speaks flattery to his friends even the eyes of his children will fail. And I have to admit that I've waffled back and forth about different interpretations of this verse, and so I'm particularly hesitant here. But I finally uh, came to the conclusion that probably this verse belongs with what follows. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children, will fail. That is, God will judge someone who speaks flattery. But what has happened to me, he says, I don't have people who speak flattery to me. I've become a proverb of the people. I've become one in whose face men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadows. He's talking again about his distress, but the distress brought on him by his enemies and he says, I'm not in the situation of, of one who's flattered by his friends, whose, whose children should fail. I'm in the situation of one who's unjustly condemned by his friends. What about what kind of judgment should come on them? Upright men are astonished at this. That is, that they can get away with this. And the innocent stirs himself up against. The hypocrites who speak in that kind of way. Yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. That is, in spite of what my friends are doing to me, I will hold to my way. That's at least one possibility. Another possibility, especially with regard to verses 8 and 9, is that he's speaking sarcastically of his friends. And he's saying, well, they're the upright ones. And they look at me and they're astonished at what has happened to me. They stir themselves up against me as if I were a hypocrite. And they who are the righteous, who consider that they are righteous, they hold to their way. And their hands become stronger and stronger. So that's another possibility with regard to those verses. But the whole point is here... In verse 6, I think, this is God's doing. He has made me a byword of the people. And because of him, I've become one in whose face men spit. So Job is saying, really, God has become my enemy. He hates me. In verses 10 to 16 of the chapter then, Job returns back to his friends. And you can see that by the plural you in verse 10. But please come back again, all of you. He says, basically, why don't you try again? Rethink what you've said. Uh, Consider perhaps whether you want to say anything different to me this time or strengthen your arguments that you've already presented to me. Come back again, all of you. I'm still persuaded I will not find one wise man among you. My days are past. My purposes are broken off, even the thoughts of my heart. And then about his friends again. They change the night into day. He says, I'm in the darkness. And they try to make me think that I'm in the light. Or at least that the light is near. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. That's what my friends do to me, he says. And so again, despairing words in the rest of the chapter. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister. Where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? He looks at death again somewhat differently than he has before, right? We saw in his his first speech that he really looked at death as as simply an escape from suffering. He said, let me die, because that will be the end of my suffering. And we saw in another speech earlier that he looked at death as the passageway to glory. He, he um, looked at it as the, uh, a hope, and the way to his appearing finally in the presence of God. But he saw that as a hope deferred and so could take no comfort from it for the present. But now he looks at death and he says, if I die now, I die without hope. And hope can't exist in the grave. There will be no hope there. And that, I think, is the meaning of verse 16, will they, that's a a reference to hope, The two references to hope in verse 15. Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? That is, will hope accompany me to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? Will hope be there with me in the dust of the grave? So that I can take some comfort. In other words, he's saying there is no comfort either in going down to the grave. That's the end of hope. So again, he sees his friends as useless, troublesome comforters. And he sees God as his enemy, using very strong language about him. He hates me. He grabs me by the neck and shakes me to pieces. He runs against me like a warrior. And yet I think we have to say that even in this, Job has not lost faith. He's so deeply troubled that he can find no comfort in his faith. But he does not deny the existence of God. He does not curse God. He does not rebel against God. His trouble is that God has become his enemy. And he desperately, most desperately, wants an answer to the question, Why has God turned against me? Why does he hate me? And why does he do these things to me? I can find no answer to that question. If only God would answer me, I am sure that he would justify me. And that's basically where Job uh, stays through the rest of his speeches. So that finally God has to say to him, You think that you will justify yourself with me, what man can. I am God. May God bless you with his word.